America's number one show on pop culture and politics. This is The Michael Medved Show. And another great day in this greatest nation on God's green earth. A great nation despite the fact that one out of five Americans, according to a new federal survey, uh, people aged 12 or older. Yes, includes 13-year-olds, 14-year-olds, uh, that one out of five of uh, that age group has used marijuana within the last year. Now, is this a problem? Uh, we will talk about that in light of a, a series of new studies, including one that talks about how marijuana use can affect surgery and actually put you in a great deal of danger of not getting uh, sufficient uh, doses of anesthesia, which you need more of if you're a uh, regular pot user. To talk about some of this, it's great to welcome back to the show uh, Luke Niferatos, who is the executive vice president of an organization called Smart Approaches to Marijuana. And... Uh, Luke, I, I had not heard anything at all about this. I mean, I guess this is not the kind of, the kind of information that the marijuana uh, industry, big weed, wants the public to know about. Uh, what is exactly the danger here regarding anesthesia, surgery, and pot use? Yeah, Michael, it's always such a pleasure uh, to be on your show. Just uh, been listening to you literally since uh, I was growing up with my dad as a as a kid. So thank you for the good work you've been doing. Appreciate um, it. You know, you know, it is uh, it is truly it's just kind of astonishing. These are the kind of the price that we pay uh, when we rush a policy forward. So you know, my state of Colorado legalized marijuana a decade ago. That's where I'm from. And so it's only been 10 years and we had never seen, you know, commercial mind altering drugs before really uh, outside of alcohol and tobacco. And so we, we fast tracked this, we made it widely available. We let an industry change and alter this drug, make it more potent. And we did so without knowing a lot of things. And one of those things that we're now starting to uncover is that marijuana and anesthetics do not go together well. And so we had our nation's top uh, association of anesthesiologists issue a warning saying, you know, uh, surgical centers, uh, surgeons, et cetera, need to screen patients for quote unquote medical marijuana use or just any marijuana use uh, because it contraindicates with a lot of the anesthetics that are being used uh, before surgical uh, procedures. So what that means is uh, it interacts badly with uh, the anesthetics and people could you know, potentially die. They could have no help from uh, the anesthetics that are being given to them for the surgery. All kinds of uh, unfortunate things could happen. And again, this is what happens when we rush these things through without listening to our nation's doctors, who, by the way, all, you know, American Medical Association, all the nation's top medical organizations are opposed to legalizing marijuana. And this is in part why, because of things like this. Okay, part of uh, what is happening here is apparently you require a higher dose of anesthetics if you have been a regular pot user. And this means even for very serious surgeries or for even routine uh, surgical procedures like endoscopies, which happens with, with people. Uh, the, the, the danger is that uh, the anesthetic 
doesn't work as well. You need uh, more of it if uh, if you're a chronic marijuana user, right? That's right. Yeah. And actually, what's interesting is, you know, so we saw this with anesthetics where, you know, it's not, uh, you know, it is not sufficient to just give the normal amount of, of anesthetics. You actually have to give more, which that creates a whole lot of uh, risks for the patient just right there. But also there have been research studies on, you know, when they're using opioids in a hospital setting, uh, if they're marijuana users, they require a lot more uh, opioids administered including to get that fent- pain relief in- uh, during the fent- hospital procedure in- as well. Including fentanyl, right? That's correct. Yeah. yeah. Hospital uh, fentanyl, when it's administered, requires a lot more of it. And that flies in the face of the narrative, Michael, that we've heard from the industry saying, well, marijuana will help you with your pain. And if you use marijuana, you won't need opiates. Uh, but study after study just in the last five years has shown the opposite. You actually need more opiates uh, if you're a patient. Okay. Uh, this is, by the way, the subject of a terrific piece uh, full of data and information and research by uh, – Sumati Reddy in the Wall Street Journal today, and it's 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 very important. But there's more. Uh, there's a, another piece uh, about California's marijuana paradise lost, and one of the big arguments for legalization. And I know you heard this in your native Colorado, uh, Luke, and uh, this was the argument that was made everywhere was that if they legalize marijuana, the black market will go away. How's that uh, black market doing in, say, California, where pot is not only legal, it's popular? Yeah, no, it's it's so funny because that's what we were promised in Colorado. That's what they were promised in, in California is that, you know, somehow after legalizing marijuana, the cartels would put down their guns and, you know, join PETA or something like that. I, I don't know. <laughs> but, uh, did not happen. Uh, we have worse uh, cartel activity, worse illegal drug dealing, and, and all those things. And so look no further than California, which was the subject of this Wall Street Journal op-ed today, um, where you know they're talking about the fact that more than 80% of the entire market for marijuana, sales, use, more than 80% of that is done on the black market. So literally the legal industry is serving state legal industry still federally illegal the the state legal industry is serving only 20 percent uh of of the market so it's an absolute disaster um cartels from mexico and china and nicaragua are setting up shop across uh, california particularly in their open uh you know in the uh, national forests and other areas and uh and setting up illegal pot grows and they're using legalization as cover for their illegal activity so um, you know, it, law enforcement is not even close to resourced enough to be able to inspect every single grow site. Every, you know, in fact, we're hearing from a lot of these states where they're not even bothering to inspect any of the marijuana businesses, which is a whole other uh, concern right there. But there's certainly not enough resources to inspect every single grow site. So the cartels are using that as cover. They've got their own grow sites, totally illegal, but nobody knows. Uh, and actually, there was a big expose done in NBC just a few weeks ago. Um, that identified how these cartels are bringing in human trafficking victims to work these illegal pot grows, and that they they estimate more than 80% of the products going to the le- the state legal marijuana industry are coming from work done by human trafficking victims, which is just horrifying. And and if you haven't seen it, there's a whole NBC segment on it you can find online. You don't have to look to an NBC segment. If we're here in the state of Washington. And we, I was talking the other day on the air about 
what uh, the negative impact is on neighborhoods of uh, legal marijuana dispensaries or shops that are set up. And somebody was saying, oh, no, no, you can't set them up anywhere. You can't set them up near a school, for instance. Uh, that really hasn't worked out that well, has it? No, it, it hasn't. So, you know, actually, California is one of the places where they, so first of all, California's got thousands of illegal pot dispensaries that are cartel-backed or just illegal operator-backed um, that are literally set up. They look like legal businesses. They're in you know shopping areas, but they're totally illegal, totally unregulated, and no one's doing a thing about it. They're just selling black market weed and, and getting away with it. So that, that's one problem. And uh, they are setting these up near to schools and targeting kids with their products like candies and gummies, et cetera. But also the legal industry uh, wrangled the words in the, the law for legalizing in the, the ballot referendum for legalizing marijuana, where they said that kindergartens and pre-Ks, uh, private kindergartens and pre-Ks do not classify as quote unquote schools in the definitions of, of the legislation, which is just despicable. So you have dispensaries that are right next door to private kindergartens and pre-Ks across California, as well as Oregon. They, they did this as well. And so the question becomes... So, such an, an, a great enhancement for, for, such a great enhancement for neighborhoods, right? We, we will be right back because there's more. Why, with all of this information coming out, is Chuck Schumer trying to legalize marijuana on a federal level? We'll get to it. Medved Show. A few minutes more with uh, Luke uh, Niferatus, uh, Niferatus, who is the executive vice president of Smart Approaches to Marijuana. And uh, uh, Luke, we were talking before about pot shops and their impact on neighborhoods and their their likelihood of uh, actually bringing crime and antisocial behavior uh, in, in their wake. Has there been uh, some authoritative research about that, the impact of actual pot shops on neighborhoods? Yeah, there has been, Michael, unfortunately. Uh, and, and it's really not surprising, but... The research shows us two things. One, if you have a pot shop in your community, uh, it decreases the perception of risk of using marijuana for youth and young adults. So basically everybody under the age of uh, 25 basically uh, has a reduced perception of risk for, for using it. They, they think it's basically more normal because uh, they're, they're growing up around it. They're seeing it around. Uh, and, then, and the second thing that a pot shop brings is an increase in crime in the immediate community around it. So... Um, a 2019 study done by the University of Colorado found about a double-digit percent increase. It was around 20 percent increase in property crime in the immediate vicinity of places that had uh, marijuana shops. And there's some other research that has kind of echoed that finding in recent years. And so, I mean, it's not surprising because, you know, anywhere you have uh, mind-altering substances being sold, um, they tend to bring, you know, a different crowd. And so I think that's why we're seeing most, interestingly, a lot of people don't know this, most of the cities and towns in every single state that's legalized marijuana have opted out of legalization. So they've banned pot shops. They've, they've banned the industry uh, from their localities. And so, for example, even a blue state like California, 
more than 80% of, of California's towns and cities have opted out of legalization, uh, which is pretty striking. Uh, and you also have you know, Oregon, 70%, uh, Colorado, 65%. So most of these states have opted out, and that's a really important thing to know. Well, again, and, and also the pot shops themselves become a target of crime. There was a case here a couple of years ago in uh, Snohomish County, uh, Washington, which is just north of King County in Seattle, where uh, uh, criminals broke into a pot shop and held people hostage, locked them in a, a vault somewhere. And a pretty serious matter, because I guess if you are looking for a, a business to target where there will be some cash on hand and other stuff you can steal that is uh, valuable, and uh, where there may not uh, be the best standards of security, these emporiums also uh, lend themselves to that kind of abuse. That's correct. Yeah, Michael, you know, it's interesting. Uh, you know, people, you know, they're obviously jewelry stores are targets for crime as well because of the valuable products that they have, you know, not necessarily because they have cash on premises. And it's, it's the same kind of thing uh, here at work with pot shops where, you know, you steal weed, you can sell it on the black market, and make a lot of money, especially these high potency concentrates that the industry is really pushing right now. So, you know, there, there's been a lot of uh, play in D.C. about, you know, hey, we should have there's a, thing called, a bill called the Safe Banking Act where they're saying let's let's basically legalize marijuana for financial purposes, not, you know, not the use and sales, but legalize the, the finance part of it. So that they can get banked and you know get rid of all that cash. And the argument that they're that the industry is making is you know we're we're a cash only business and that's what people are robbing us for. And it's really dishonest because they're they're not getting robbed for the cash. In fact, in some of these robberies, the cash isn't even being stolen out of the pot shop. It's it's all about stealing the product, which can be sold for a whole lot more and, and make a, a whole lot more money. And so really, what it's about, you know, when you look at the Safe Banking Act, is it's this bill that's being used to try to legalize marijuana backdoor, basically, you know, and, so they can get all the billions through the banks and, and all those kinds of things. And it's not only backdoor. The uh, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer has introduced the Cannabis Administration and Opportunity Act, which would decriminalize weed on the federal level and allow states to set their own marijuana laws without any fear of punishment from Washington. A federal legalization, is that inevitable? No, it's not. You know, Schumer knows that that bill is dead on arrival, uh, which is why he introduced it and then really hasn't done anything with it since. Uh, it speaks volumes, the, the lack of speaking he's done on that bill. He's really focused on the Safe Banking Act because he, he figures with his partnerships with the bank as well as with the banks, as well as with uh, big tobacco. You know, Altria is the uh, biggest tobacco company in the country here. This new name for Altria or a new name for Philip Morris and Marlboro. Um, you know, they're really pushing and lobbying hard for this banking act because, you know, they want to make money off of this thing. So that's what he's spending a lot of his time on. And, you know, for uh, being a guy who is, you know, really leading the fight against anti-tobacco, uh, you know, the, uh, leading the fight for anti-tobacco efforts, it's really odd to see him kind of in bed with tobacco, you know, on trying to, you know, get marijuana uh, banked. But, you know, he, he's pushing it. It's not inevitable, though. There's no votes for this. McConnell certainly, uh, he said himself he's not a marijuana guy and he should be applauded for that. And I think also we, we need to understand just even, you know, I'm in, I'm in Colorado, you know, you're in a legal state, Washington uh, state, even in states with legal marijuana, it's, it's not a good idea to encourage legalization at the federal level uh, or any kind of advance there. Because, 
this is really experimental. You know, it's, it's really only been 10 years since Washington and Colorado were the first states to legalize. And we need to have a lot more years of studying and understanding what happens when you legalize this. What, what happens to our youth? We're already seeing a whole lot of bad things happening. Um, I think this is an experiment that, you know, the American people might want to actually fix this thing or, you know, or roll it back one day. We, we should not, uh, you know, rush down the road to federalize this uh, when we really are just beginning to understand all the problems associated with these new products and with this new industry. There's a word that uh, they're expecting that uh, marijuana use within a couple of years should exceed uh, tobacco use in America, which would have seemed unthinkable years ago. Uh, comment? Yeah, I mean, it's we're, we're basically what we're doing is it's it's kind of like watching a car crash happen over again on replay in slow motion. That's kind of what we're watching right now. And it's and the reason I say replay is because we've seen all this with tobacco. We fought tobacco for 50 years. It's still killing 500,000 Americans every year. Um, it has killed millions of people around the world. Tobacco has. These companies got away with it. They continue to get away with it. They're making billions of dollars still, if you can believe it. And we're now watching the beginnings of this all over again with marijuana. And and I, I know that because, first of all, tobacco is the biggest investor in the marijuana industry, and they're really teaching it uh, all the, the tools of the trade and all the tricks. Uh, but, but I also know this because we are seeing the industry do the same thing that tobacco did. They've altered marijuana. Now it's 99% potent. The plant in its nature, natural state was never even close to that. It was 1% to 3%. Um, so it's not even the same plant anymore, just like they altered tobacco. Um, they've made it more addictive. So you know, just like they did with nicotine and tobacco, now these, these marijuana products, one in three people, according to our federal statistics, one in three people who uses marijuana in the last year will develop a cannabis use disorder. That, that's marijuana addiction. Um, so addiction rates rising. Um, it's it's really uh, you know a scary time for those of us in public health where we you know fought a long time uh, to get rid of big tobacco and now we got big marijuana. And that's why it's so important uh, the work that you're do doing, uh, Luke Niferodas, at uh, executive vice president of the Smart Approaches to Marijuana. Information posted on our website. Coming up, something else that's really dangerous is the war on democracy, maybe even here at home. How? Why? We'll be right back on the Medved the Show. The Michael Medved Show. MichaelMedved.com. From politics to pop culture and from coast to coast, this is The Michael Medved Show. And on the Michael Medved Show, there are all kinds of studies and surveys and research that is done on where the American people are, where we are ideologically, where we are in terms of values, what is important, what are priorities to the American electorate. I mean, obviously, when you have elections where so many untold billions of dollars are spent on advertising and consultants and designing campaign speeches and all the rest of it, this is a, a major industry. And there is a study that I think is very important and I think it's in fact necessary and it's gotten almost no attention because it comes from a, a small but a very worthy college, Allegheny College and in Pennsylvania. And uh, 
it's um, uh, by a number of faculty members aided by a number of graduate students there. And uh, it's a study about uh, democratic norms in America. And the headline for their release about what they looked at is large numbers of Americans want a strong, rough, anti-democratic leader. And uh, they write, as scholars interested in how committed citizens are to democracy, we wanted to measure whether regular Americans want someone who will abide by democratic traditions and practices or will dispense with them. Uh, Using a nationally representative sample of 1,500 respondents, we found that a large proportion of Americans are willing to support leaders who would violate democratic principles. At the Allegheny College Center for Political Participation, we, with our former student, uh, student Candace Crawford, asked people about their willingness to support leaders who promised to protect them by any means necessary. Even if that meant violating expected standards of behavior in a democracy, a set of principles often called democratic norms. We developed these questions based on existing research about the strategies that leaders with anti-democratic tendencies use to build public support. In Venezuela, for instance, democratic decline happened gradually. Early on, Venezuela's former president, Hugo Chavez, was known for using nationalist language and calling opponents epithets like rancid oligarchs and squealing pigs. Later, he blacklisted those who sought his removal from office through a democratically conducted referendum. Eventually, he went further, arresting and exiling his political opponents. And now, of course, they have uh, Maduro, the uh, handpicked successor to the late Hugo Chavez. And under his leadership, there have been more than a million people who have fled the country. And some numbers say it's much more than a million people I'm desperately trying to go somewhere else, many of them to the United States. In our study, we asked about behaviors that foreshadow the early stages of democratic decline. For instance, we asked citizens whether they thought the only way our country can solve its current problems is by supporting tough leaders who will crack down on those who undermine American values. We also asked about explicit violations of democratic principles like shutting down news organizations and bending the rules to get things done. Anti-democratic statements are embraced by members of both U.S. political parties, but more commonly by Republicans. For example, about 90% of Republicans say they would support tough leaders who crack down on groups that undermine American values. However, the respondents define those values. More than half of Democrats take the same position. Perhaps even more notably, nearly half of citizens who strongly support the Republican Party and over a third of those who strongly support the Democratic Party endorse the view that it is acceptable to bend the rules for people like themselves to achieve political goals. This echoes other research that has found Americans on both sides of the political aisle are willing to sacrifice democratic principles and practices if it means their political party wins elections.
sobering? Are you one of those people who feels that it should be necessary to bend the rules and to crack down on opponents to help your party, whichever party it is, uh, win elections? Uh, 1-800-955-1776, our phone number. Do you remember, it was uh, very recently that President Trump gave comments about the stolen election, which, of course, is an obsessive concern with the former president, and uh, basically said that sometimes you have to set aside the Constitution. Uh, this is almost exactly what they're talking about in this study which is the idea of bending the rules. And the problem here is that if you, if you don't rely on the Constitution, then uh, it's the, what the people call the law of the jungle, right? That it's all about strength and mobilizing your side. And part of what makes a republic a republic is that it, it's not just the will of the majority, there's also some protection for the minority. Uh, meanwhile, this, uh, this also goes to a question about the future of the Republican Party and the upcoming election. There's a piece over at Newser that says Trump may actually want Nikki Haley to run in 2024. Why is that? Uh, A.B. Stoddard, who was on our show last week, said that uh, Nikki Haley is really running for vice president and any Republican who actually wins the nomination would be very likely to pick Nikki Haley as a candidate for vice president. Maybe that's true, but that's not what this article is saying. Former President Trump says he recently told Nikki Haley to go by your heart in her decision to run for his old job in 2024. Apparently she called him even though he's also a contender. Now it looks like Haley's expected candidacy might actually help Trump, siphoning away support from uh, yet another anticipated Republican challenger, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, and ultimately tipping the GOP nomination scales in Trump's favor. That's a report from The Guardian. Uh, this scenario comes courtesy of a new Yahoo News YouGov poll of nearly 1,600 U.S. adults held February 2nd to 6th. It shows that DeSantis is ahead of Trump, uh, 45% to 41%. That's within the margin of error, by the way. If the party, if the primary were to be held today, if Haley made it a three-way race, she'd draw 11% of the votes uh, dropping DeSantis's number to 35%, leaving Trump with the victory at 38%. The poll found that even if this race opened up wider with nine candidates, Trump would still narrowly eke out a win. Can I tell you, this far away from the election, uh, these uh, kinds of narrow results where you're winning 38% to 35%, they really don't mean a uh, great deal. Uh, the um, uh, the idea that uh, that right now President Trump is actually secretly uh, rooting for Nikki Haley to make a good race and to become uh, a death blow for Ron DeSantis. Who knows whether Ron DeSantis will even run? 
But the uh, former president told reporters over the weekend that Haley had phoned him to alert him of her presidential plans, and he says he told her, go by your heart if you want to run. And what about the idea of voter suppression? Is there uh, a real negative impact on turnout overall for any group defined by race, gender, age? We'll get to it on The MedVet Show. Uh, Michael, this is the best show. This is the... The Michael Medved Show. And on the Michael Medved Show, uh, elections matter. And yes, I think we have too many elections in the United States. We have every single year is an election year. By the way, if if you didn't notice, there was an important election in Pennsylvania on Tuesday. They had uh, three different seats available on the state House of Representatives, seats that uh, had contests in them. The Democrats swept all three. It was in Allegheny County in Pennsylvania on Tuesday, and now the Democrats have added to their gains from the 2022 midterm election. They now have controlled the Pennsylvania House of Representatives by 102 votes to 101 votes. They needed to sweep all three. They did. Anyway, the um, too many elections, but they are significant in election security and election suppression and election fraud of all kinds is a legitimate study and a question. And uh, one of the the points that Republicans have made to our credit, I believe, for a long time is that one of the best ways to avoid every different kind of fraud you can imagine is uh, election ID, is basically treating uh, casting a ballot as seriously as you treat cashing a check. You can't cash a check somewhere unless you show ID. And uh, the idea that you should have to show ID for elections is not racist. It is not destructive. It is not discriminatory. A uh, 2021 study, uh, which was just recently publicized in Wall Street Journal, detected no negative effect on registration or turnout overall or for any group defined by race, gender, age or party affiliation by requiring voter ID. This ought to be old news, but somebody please inform President Biden and the Democrats that another academic study has found voter ID laws don't have real partisan consequences. Uh, The uh, new analysis uh, posted um, Monday this week by the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, so it's pretty authoritative, comes at the question from a slightly different angle. Existing research focuses on how voter ID laws affect voter turnout and fraud, write the two authors who are political scientists at Notre Dame, but the extent to which they produce observable electrical electoral benefits for Republican candidates and or penalize Democratic candidates remains an open question. So what's the answer to that open question after examining state and federal elections from 2003 to 2020? Quote, the first laws implemented produced a Democratic advantage 
which weakened to near zero after 2012, the study says. We conclude that voter ID requirements motivate and mobilize supporters of both parties, ultimately mitigating their anticipated effects on election results. The lack of suppressive outcome explains why requiring voter ID fraud is favored by 77% of people of color and 80% of white adults. That's to quote Gallup's poll from last year. For that matter, the journal says, have a gander at the University of Georgia's 2022 post-election survey asked to rate their personal experience voting in the Peach State, which was so close and so crucial to the election. 72.6% of black residents said their experience voting was excellent. 23.6% said their experience was good. Uh, 3.3% said it was fair. 0% said it was poor. In other words, what you have here is 95% of black residents said they had a good experience going to the polls. And this was after all that screaming about how the Georgia electoral reform that was passed by the Republican legislature was going to take away the right to vote. I mean, again, I, I hope that Stacey Abrams will take a close look at this. Uh, those who had a self-reported problem with voting included uh, 1.3% of white people. Ouch. And uh, half of a percent of blacks. In other words, white people were three times as likely to be frustrated by uh, the electoral process in Georgia as black people. This is an amazing development. I'll tell you what else is an amazing development is uh, the D.C. District Judge Trevor McFadden found Kevin Seafried guilty last June of each of the five charges he faced, including obstructing an uh, official proceeding, disorderly conduct in a Capitol building, and entering and remaining in a restricted area. Uh, he's a Delaware guy, not a Biden Delaware guy, who carried a large Confederate flag inside the U.S. Capitol during the January 6, 2021 riot that was part of the mob that chased the U.S. Capitol police officer. He's now been sentenced after having been found guilty a couple of months ago. Uh, he'll be facing three years in prison. Uh, during the trial before uh, Judge Trevor McFadden, uh, the um, United States Capitol Police Officer Eugene Goodman, remember him? testified that Seafried had jabbed the base of the flagpole toward him multiple times to try to push him away. Seafried, Goodman said, uh, uh, eventually moved back to rejoin the mob after the officer didn't move. He was that hero who led the mob when they were rampaging the wrong way, so they actually wouldn't. I uh, said, oh, no, go up here, follow me, up here, this way, this way. He's an African-American guy, one guy, and the mobs were trying to get him. And I wonder how Officer Goodman felt about being poked by a giant Confederate flag. As, I mean, honestly, uh, 
and and I wonder if uh, if if somehow this uh, convicted Kevin Seafried uh, is actually going to hold on to his Confederate flag as a cherished memento. Um, there were some calls in for national unity in the uh, State of the Union address, and uh, those calls were actually echoed in one sense on Fox News by Kevin McCarthy uh, talking well about the dangers of China. Uh, listen, this is clip seven. Think about this. China actually acknowledged, yes, it is their balloon. And then they had the boldness to say after it was shot down, after it had gone over our sovereignty, that they want it back. I mean, it's very important that we do capture it, find out what's on it, find out what they are doing. But they did put out publicly the American uh, intel to the public that this isn't the only one, that it's also in other continents as well. This is what China has been doing, but it should be no doubt to us. This is the reason why I, when we became speaker, I selected and created a new um, committee on China, put an equal number of Republicans and Democrats, where I think we have really failed as a country is when we don't speak with one voice to China. We've become dependent in so many areas, be it critical minerals. They're looking at our stealing our farmland. You look at our intellectual property that they continue to take. This has got to stop, but they are so bold to go over our country, even though we know that it's coming and we tell the public, shoot it down and they want it back. Think about it, how far they've gone. Okay, uh, look at how far they've gone and of the increasing possibility of going to war with China. Now, one of the things that I want to confront with our next guest, who's a, a Captain William Toady, who has written about America's lack of preparation for a potential war. And it's a lack of um, preparation in terms of personnel as well as equipment, particularly naval equipment. Uh, and I know people say two things. They say, first of all, uh, what ma will it matter with the naval equipment? This is going to be a nuclear war. They're a nuclear power. Uh, the idea that the fact that we have nuclear weapons means we don't have to worry about actually defending Taiwan, if it comes to that, or defending, helping to defend Japan or South Korea or the Philippines, where we just reached an agreement to place more forces. What do you say about that? And what do you say about the idea that uh, it's, it's just too nightmarish to even think about war with China? We will talk about that coming up with a naval strategist and a retired captain in our Navy, a William Toady, coming up to talk about defending this greatest nation on God's green earth. Thank you.